0: We look this morning at scriptures that were precious to Jonathan Edwards and to others. And we consider the life of this faithful man to learn how we can be more faithful in pursuing and knowing you. I'm struck by the song that we just sang because Edwards would have sung that with his whole heart. You are his vision. You are his high king of heaven. He left everything to follow you, and he was faithful unto the end, though imperfect as he may have been. But there is so much for us to learn in terms of how to apply the truth that you have given us in your word. And so I pray that you would help us on this unique occasion as we consider the life of one of the heroes of the faith. Be glorified in it now, Father, but not just now. May we leave this place with a new resolve, a new passion for knowing you, following you, being delighted in you, and a new passion for knowing and studying and meditating on your word. And so, Father, we give you this hour. It is yours. Do with it what you will, but use it to change us, Father, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In his introduction to my favorite extra-biblical book, which is The Life and Diary of David Brainerd. Jonathan Edwards wrote these words. There are two ways of representing and recommending truth, true religion, excuse me, there are two ways of representing and recommending true religion and virtue to the world. The one by doctrine and precept, the other by instance and example, both are abundantly used in Holy Scripture. Each year, typically the first or second week of January, I present a biographical message of a hero of the faith to kind of fan the flame of our heart's affections for a passionate pursuit of Christ by offering you both doctrine and example. I want us to look year after year at the lives of upright and blameless men of God who lived before us, often centuries before us, and see in them a faith worthy of our imitation. I want us to see the Word of God applied in the lives of godly men and women in a way that we can aspire to. I want us to look beyond the 21st century Western watered down Christianity that we see every day, to a kind of living faith that is both more devoted and more blessed than most of what we see in our time. And when we're done, perhaps God's Spirit will have sparked a new resolve in your soul to remember those who have walked according to the pattern set by Jesus and the apostles, and considering the fruit of their lives, you might imitate their faith. If you go into my study uh, sometime, you'll find I've got a lot of books in my library. I have one whole shelf that is nothing but biography, and that shelf is not big enough. There are books stacked on top and sideways, and I have to have some of them at home. I've got one of them here with me. Um, Reading biography is important to me because learning the truth of the Word of God is of the utmost importance. But it's extremely helpful to me to see men who were faithful in applying that truth in ways that I might not have thought of on my own. We all need to be discipled. The best disciplers I have are all dead. And they disciple me still. And they should you as well. Let me start with a br- brief biography of Jonathan Edwards. And I know for those of you who know Edwards, this is going to be totally dissatisfying for you. But for those of you who don't know him so well, I just want to introduce you to him. Jonathan Edwards was born in East Windsor, Connecticut, on October 5, 1703. This was 73 years before the American Revolution. His parents were Reverend Timothy Edwards, who for 64 years was the pastor of a congregational church in East Windsor, And Esther Stoddard, daughter of the Reverend Stoddard, who was for more than 50 years pastor of the Church of Northampton, Massachusetts. Jonathan was the only son in a family of 11 children. You know what that means. The poor guy had 11 sisters. And think of it, one boy with 10, excuse me, he had 10 sisters, he was the 11th. And as each of his siblings grew, history tells us that his sisters were mostly about six feet tall each. And so Jonathan became known in the community as the boy who had 60 feet of sisters. (laughs) In the early years, he was homeschooled by his excellent father, who was a Latin, Greek, and Hebrew scholar. Jonathan began the study of Latin At age six. When he was ten, when he was ten years old, he wrote a reply to a fellow student who held that the soul of man was material. At age ten, Jonathan Edwards disagreed with that proposition. This letter that he wrote in response to his friend was marked by humor, sarcasm, and showed an unusual depth of thought. At age 12, he wrote an essay on the wood spider. He was into natural sciences. Today, this is famously known as the spider letter. And you can look at it online if you choose to. He wrote it when he was 12. Young Jonathan entered Yale College in New Haven in 1716, um, just before his 13th birthday. Now, that may seem amazing, and it was, but understand that everybody who went to college entered college pretty young. Nevertheless, he was exceptionally brilliant, and though he had been deeply affected spiritually under the ministry of his father when he was a child, nevertheless, he claims to not have truly been born again until he was in the latter part of his college years. In September 1720, just before his 17th birthday, Edwards graduated from Yale College with the highest honors. He continued on at Yale for three more years until he received a degree of Master of Arts in September 1723. In the summer of 1726, Mr. Edwards was invited to become the assistant to his grandfather, the Reverend Solomon Stoddard. This was actually his wife's grandfather. Solomon Stoddard, pastor of the Congregational Church in Northampton, who was kind of the John MacArthur of his day. He accepted the call, and on February 15th, 1727, when he was 23 years old, he was ordained to the ministry and installed as co-pastor of a church. At some point during this time, he took the commission of going to New York on Long Island to minister to a church there. And I think it was before he took this post with his grandfather. And the church that he took on Long Island was a church split. It was a split from another church, a group of angry people from a small church split off, made their own church. They brought him in to be a pastor. And you know what he did? (laughs) He worked himself out of a job, and uh, within, I think, a year, he led them, if I understand correctly, he led them back to the mother church where they repented and were restored to the congregation, and he was out of a job. But eventually he did get to work with his, his grandfather. Um, two years later, in February 1729, Reverend Stoddard unexpectedly died. And the whole care of this large congregation came solely upon this young pastor It was a tradition in congregational churches. Um, If you were going to be a pastor in one of these churches, you needed to have, have a significant education. In fact, Jonathan Edwards, as did John Calvin, believed that no young man should be installed as the pastor of a church until he has had six years of thorough education. And so he really was not planning on being a pastor this young. And yet he was, this was a traditional congregational church, 1735, it had 620 members. That's larger than us by about 220. During his ministry at this church, Edwards catechized the children, counseled people in his study, and delivered, I love this part, his usual Sunday morning two-hour sermon. <laughs> now, only about a third of you laughed at that. <laughs> Maybe the rest of you were nervous, so I don't know. Though relatively inexperienced in the ministry, as a result of unceasing prayer, faithful labor, and the special blessing of God, a great revival came upon the church in Northampton and continued throughout the years, 1734 to 1735. It extended to every part of the town, and someone in nearly every household was touched, changed, perhaps even born again. Their best count was there was more than 300 conversions in a period of only a few months, and the whole atmosphere of the town changed. If you're familiar with this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and we were talking about this after the first service. He didn't preach that in his own church. There was another church that uh, the pastor called him because he was having trouble with his congregation. They were spiritually lifeless, dry. It was almost a dead church, best I can tell. And they brought Jonathan Edwards to come in to preach to stir them up a little bit. And that is where he preached his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And they needed to hear it. Unfortunately, Jonathan Edwards is known almost exclusively as the author of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, as if that were kind of the the cornerstone of his whole ministry. And it has become a caricature of Jonathan Edwards that he was this harsh... Uh, you know, skeletal uh, figure with his bony, pointy finger telling people that if they didn't repent, they were going to go to hell and be burned like a creepy spider. That is not at all what Jonathan Edwards was like. Not at all what he was like. His congregation loved him. People flocked to hear him. And you'll see why here in a little bit. Later, Northampton was the scene of a second great revival in the spring of 1740. In the autumn, George Whitfield, the great British evangelist, made a second visit to America, and he came into the colonies, especially up into New England, and spent four days with Mr. Edwards. They became fast friends. Whitfield preached five sermons at Edwards' pulpit, and as a result of Whitfield and Edwards' preaching, along with the ministry of other faithful pastors, revival broke out all over New England. New York, yes, even New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, and as far south as Joe Oliver would call God's country, South Carolina, and Georgia, but not Florida, because that's where everyone from New Jersey retires. (laughs) There were literally thousands of conversions, and many cold, dead churches were brought back to life. And when when I hear that, when I read that, I think, that's what God did here. God brought this cold, dead church back to life in the early 90s, and we are all reaping the benefits of it. Well, these were the events in the early American history known commonly as the Great Awakening. There was also another Great Awakening by a protege of Jonathan Edwards, whose name was David Brainerd, and I preached about him last week, last year, who God used to lead the, the Great Awakening among the Indians. But that was last year's sermon. In any case, by God's grace, Jonathan Edwards, by his faithful preaching and what he called Godward living, played a significant role in this extraordinary work of the Spirit. But this is not the only thing he was known for. The thing he's most known for today is his writings, his sermon. Certainly most known for Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, unfortunately, although it was a great message. You can find it online. You can purchase it. Max McLean does a reading of it. My only concern is if you listen to it with your family, don't listen to it before they go to bed. It's a little bit scary, but it is wonderful. Um, He's known for that. He's known for his part, and he was only one of many parts of the Great Awakening, although he received a lot of credit for that, and duly. But after some time, as years went by, he made some mistakes in his church that caused some personal offenses. Not only that, but there was a doctrinal issue that, that he was concerned about, wherein he disagreed with his grandfather. Imagine disagreeing with the spiritual hero of the whole community, the whole, I mean, all of New England, And it was relative to the Lord's table and people coming to Christ and whether they should be allowed membership in the church and and participation in the Lord's table. He disagreed with his grandfather, and he wrote about it, and that got him into more trouble. And eventually, though he was pursuing faithfulness, he got kicked out of his church. And you think, that's a disaster. Well, humanly speaking, and certainly for him, it would have felt like a disaster, And in some sense it was. However, what happened was God took Jonathan Edwards and threw him out into the wilderness, literally into the forests of New England, where he became a missionary. He joined a mission out in the forest ministering to the Indians. The thing was, because he was out there, he had lots of time on his hands. When he wasn't ministering to the Indians or his fellow ministers, he was writing books, and almost all of his great works that he wrote was during that time. And then one day, a delegation from the College of New Jersey, which is now Princeton University, came to him and said, we want you to be the president of our school. And he said, no. And they said, you will become the president of our school, or we will take it to your congregation and put it to the vote. And they did. And he let them. He determined that it would be, God's will would be determined by the vote of his congregation. And his congregation there among these Indians and the other uh, Englishmen who were there, they voted and they said, you need to go. And if I remember right, he said it was the first time he ever wept before his congregation. He didn't want to leave. He loved those people. He loved shepherding them. He didn't want to go to a college and be the president of a university. He wanted to be a pastor. This was going to be a step down for him. But he submitted. It's amazing, as I've read biographies over the years, how these great faithful men submitted to the authorities that were over them when in our day we would look at that and say, "Look, you have no right to tell me what to do," they believed their authorities had every right to tell them what to do. And so he um, he went. He left home. He left his wife and his children behind. They were, I think, uh, going to catch up with him later. He gets down to Princeton University. He begins his work. They start calling him President Edwards. Smallpox breaks out. They come to him and they say, "You need to take the vaccination." He took the vaccination and he died. I wish we had time to read Sarah Edwards' exhortation to her children when he died. Amazing, amazing. But that's not my question. My question this morning is, what made Jonathan Edwards such a useful instrument in the hands of God? What can we learn from him about how to live more faithfully to Scripture in our time and to be more pleasing to the Lord now. None of us are going to be like Jonathan Edwards. He was unusually gifted. Don't ever try to be like one of these guys. Don't try to be Spurgeon. You'll never do it. Don't try to be Edwards. Don't try to be Whitfield. You just be who God has called you to be. But there are lessons that can be learned, and many, many more than what I have time to talk about this morning. But just a few of my favorites here. And there will be four. So here's number one. What made Edwards' life worthy of emulation? Number one. Edwards embraced the supremacy of God over all. And I mean all. God was supreme over everything. In his heart, in his mind, in his priorities, in his life. Perhaps the greatest root problem in in the American variety of Christianity is that we have forgotten what life is about. We've forgotten what life is about. We've been duped into believing that it's all about us, when in reality, life is all about God. It's all about God. We often act scandalized over the idea that our country is moving toward an almost unanimous abandonment of God for humanistic self-help and psychology. But think about it. Walk into any Christian bookstore today and look at what's selling. I mean, what is it? The bestsellers are Christianized versions of self-help and psychology and Christian fiction, romance fiction. In the 20th century churches, or 21st century now, I guess, frankly, we've been thoroughly discipled by the world, and yet we insist on holding ourselves aloof over it as if we were better. And what's worse, the world sees it, and we don't. If the church were really God-centered, our churches would be quite different than they are. There's a strangely dissonant tone of hypocrisy that comes from a people who so twist that holy book, which was intended to reveal the majesty of God into some kind of divinely inspired self-help manual. And yes, the word of God is sufficient for every need, and we need to bring it to bear on every need. That's what... That's what biblical counseling is all about, but that is not the end of the Word of God. That is not the goal of the Word of God. The goal of the Word of God is to lead us to God. And this exposes the surreal truth that the highest pursuits of God's children, especially here in our country, is often no different than the highest pursuits of God's enemies, namely, a problem-free, self-esteeming, self-fulfilled, thoroughly entertained, and happy life. And the only difference is that the means by which we think we can achieve it is different. They believe it can be achieved through money and power and pleasure, and many of us believe it can be found in the same places, only we say those things come from God. And what we really worship is not God, but the gifts of God the graces of God, the blessings of God. But that, my friend, is not why we exist. Westminster said the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And we like to say around here, it's printed in your bulletin, see if you can say it with me, we exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God in the joy of all peoples. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. God's purpose for creating humanity was not so that humanity can fulfill itself, but so that God's own infinite person and character would be glorified, exalted, and delighted in by us. And so the purpose of our existence is to live in such a way that proclaims and upholds and relishes the glory of God. And in which invites all people to join in that joyful worship of Jesus Christ. And you don't have to be a missionary or a pastor to do that. You can be a dentist, you can be a construction worker, you can build, you know, aircraft, fly drones, you can be a plumber, you can be a housekeeper, or school teacher, musician. It's about how we live and the choices that we make. Are they God-centered, or is it all just really about us and what God can give to us? You see, beloved, everything God created, he created not only by Christ, but for Christ. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Because here, Paul talks about this. Colossians 1:16. For by him, speaking of Christ, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. That's angels and demons, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. For him. Or, as Proverbs 16:4 says. The Lord has made all things for himself. Or Romans 11, 35 and 36. Who is first given to God that it should be recompensed to him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, how do these truths apply to us? Well, I want to show you that by showing you that they were foundational to Edwards' life and teaching that everything was created for the glory of God and everything we do should be for the purpose of glorifying God. Here's what Edwards wrote. In short, the words of the apostle, now he's appealing to 1 Corinthians 6:20 and if you want to flip back to that, you can. In short, he says, in 1 Corinthians 6.20, these words are worthy of particular notice, he says. And here he quotes the passage. You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are his. And then he writes, here, Not only is glorifying God spoken of as what comprehends the very purpose of religion and of Christ redeeming us, but the apostle urges that inasmuch as we are not our own, we ought not to act as if we were our own, but God's. And should not use the members of our bodies or faculties of our souls for ourselves but for God as making God our end or our goal the target of our lives that is he says in making his glory our purpose for life that's why we're here that that controlled what he did how he wrote how he lived He saw everything through the the lens of such scriptures that he must be about the glory of God in all things. Perhaps the single characteristic that made Jonathan Edwards so unique in his day and so attractive to godly men and women in ours was his relentless God centeredness in his preaching, in his writing, and in his living. As a young man, he made a list of personal resolutions for the conduct of his own life. Most of these he wrote before the end of his 19th year. Um, he was serious. He was serious about growing in grace. And so he wrote this. Here, here's just a sample. Resolved, this is resolution number four. Resolved never to do anything, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory. Glory. How many teenagers do you know who have that kind of heart? And I'm I'm speaking not to you adults, I'm speaking to you teenagers. Resolution number 23. Resolved, frequently to consider some deliberate action in my own life which seems most unlikely to have been done for the glory of God and trace it back to the original intention, design, and ends of it. And if I find if I find it not to be for the glory of God, to repute it as a a breach of the fourth resolution. He was serious about this. This is why Edwards was so passionate about Paul's doctrine of election. His, His first published work was called God Glorified in Man's Dependence. His understanding of how people were saved was... Absolutely saturated and immersed in this whole idea that whatever God does, he does mostly for his glory, and we reap the benefits to our good. Edwards was so concerned about the man-centered doctrines that were creeping into the church, even in his day, that he wrote a 150-page essay called The End for Which God Created the World, which, by the way, has been reprinted by... Um, John Piper with commentary, and it's worth reading. In this, he argues that God's purpose for creating the world is, quote, first, that the glory of God might be magnified in the universe, and second, that Christ's ransomed people from all times and all nations would rejoice in God above all things. Above all things. We can learn a lot from Edwards' view of the supremacy of God. What the church in America, I think, needs above all else is a few men and women who earnestly believe that God is glorious and that God is God. That he is worthy of a life fully devoted to him. And keep on being a plumber. Keep on being an electrician. Keep on being a dentist. Keep on being a construction worker or a furniture builder or whatever it is you do. Keep on doing that. Only let everything you do in that and in every other area of your life be saturated with a passion for the glory of God. Edward's faith is worthy of our imitation first because his life and ministry acknowledged the supremacy of God in all things. He longed for God to be supreme in every aspect of his life. Secondly, Edwards delighted, he delighted in God as his highest good, personally. Okay, it's one thing to say I'm going to glorify God in everything that I do. So the people look at me and they see the glory of God in the work that I do, in the things that I say, and the things that I refrain from, and all of that. Today that's called legalism, unfortunately. But it's one thing to put that on as an outward thing. But it was more than that for Edwards, way more than that for Edwards. Edwards delighted in God as his personal highest good. Jesus said in the great commandment, uh, the greatest commandment in all the Bible is what? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. And as we strive to obey this command, we learn that in doing so, not only does God receive highest praise, but we enjoy the greatest good. So that God's purpose of him being glorified and our desire to find joy and happiness and to fulfill our passionate desires in life are the same. God's glory, our good. It is one holy passion. Think about it. God is the very essence. In his very essence, he is infinite in all of his perfections. He's infinite in all of his perfection. That is to say, he is not just loving, he is not just righteous, he is not just holy, he is not just good, but rather that he is the definition of, of love. He is the definition and uh, infinitude of righteousness. He is infinitely holy and the definition of holiness. And he is infinitely good and is the definition of goodness. Therefore, if there were no God, there would be none of these things. No God, no love. No God, no righteousness. No God, no holiness. No God, no good. He is the source of all of these virtues. And without him, they don't even exist. There is no righteousness. There is no holiness. There is no goodness. There is no love that is not not something that comes from God. From his very person. Therefore, when God Calls you, requires you, commands you to love him, he is calling you to love, to delight in, and to enjoy what is the highest good in the universe. When he commands you to love him, it is not some kind of prideful egotism, Vanity, no. When he commands us to love him, he is actually loving us to the fullest extent because he is giving us the highest good. King David knew this. And you read his journals in the Psalms and you find things like this. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of man take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house. You give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. You know what David was saying? The light of God is available. In the light of God, if you get into the light of God, that is the presence of God the source of all blessing, truth, goodness. That's the only place you can receive all of this from his hand. But beware, there are other lights. There are neon lights. There are blinking lights. There are pretty lights. There is the internet. There is everything you can find on your cell phone. There's advertising. There's, there's cars and vacations and, and all of these good things, television shows and movies, and they're all like lights calling you, come and be satisfied in me. And when we try to be satisfied in any one of those lights, we find ourselves disappointed. And they can only take you so far. We were talking about this last night with our family, and I said, you know, The application point here is, every day, resolve, you're going to get into the light. You're going to be where God is. You're going to be there. And you're going to be pursuing all that he is because this is what he's promised. This is what he's promised. To glory in God is to know the fullness of joy. To delight in God is to know the fullness of satisfaction. With this in mind, then, David writes in Psalm 37, 4, kind of as a command, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. In Philippians 4, 4, Paul had the same theme in in mind when he said, rejoice in the Lord. This isn't don't worry, be happy. This is is a command with infinite substance. Rejoice in the Lord. That assumes something. It assumes you're going to know him and you're going to pursue a knowledge of him. Edwards was deeply committed to applying this truth to his own life. He delighted in nothing more than communing with God in prayer, in reading and meditating on God's word, and heart-affecting worship. In fact, in his personal journal, 1773, he wrote this famous text from uh, his journal. He says, Once, as I rode out into the woods for my health, having alighted from my horse in a retired place as my manner commonly has been, to walk for divine contemplation and prayer now stop did you pick up on what he said? this was his normal habitual practice he made time to get on his horse to go to this place, this quiet place in the woods, and, and we, I realize we live in a city, we can't do that all the time Um but he went to a place where he could be alone with God for divine contemplation and prayer. And then he says this. When he was there, he writes, I had a view in this place that day. I had a view that was for me extraordinary and the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man. And his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love. And meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm, so sweet, appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ, of Christ appeared ineffably excellent, with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and contemplation, which continued as nearly as I can judge for about an hour, which kept me in the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated before him, to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him, to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. You know what? You're never going to get there if you don't meditate on God's Word. If you don't push some things out of your life, or at least out of the next 20 minutes, so that you can fellowship with Him. This same delight was found specifically in reading and meditating on God's Word. He wrote this, I had then, and at other times, the greatest delight in the Holy Scriptures of any book whatsoever. And he read books. He devoured books. Oftentimes reading it, every word seemed to touch my heart. I felt a harmony between something in my heart and those sweet and powerful words. I I seemed often to see so much light exhibited by every sentence and such a refreshing food communicated that I could not get along in... Uh, I could not get along in reading, often dwelling long on one sentence to see the wonders communicated in it, and yet almost every sentence seemed to be full of wonder. And let, it, let, me, let me just get real practical with you here. Here's what I found in my own life. Okay? I can get up in the morning. I've had, I've had long periods of time um, when I could get up in the morning, read the Bible, close my Bible, go to work, feel pretty good about myself. Because I read my Bible. <laughs> and yet, if you were to come and ask me, how was your time in the Word this morning, I'd say, oh, pretty good. And yet, I wonder how much of it really affected me. Other than feeding my mind with God's precious truth, which is wonderful. And it occurred to me that there must be more to this than that. Now, many of the, many of us are using the Horner reading plan, plan right? Ten chapters a day. Uh, my wife and I do a shorter version of that. We call it the Horner Six Step. It's uh, only six chapters a day. It's a little more manageable. And so you're reading in Genesis and Second Chronicles and Psalms and Hosea and, you know, John and Galatians all in one day, you know, one sitting, one chapter in each. And that's wonderful. You should do that. You should read large chunks of scripture. But if that's the only thing you can do, the, the only thing that you do, you'll come away saying, I read my Bible today and I'm glad, but it hasn't really affected me that much. And so here's what I started doing. I read all of that, but I read it with an eye and a mind that's saying, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Show me your glory. Show me something in here that I can delight in and meditate on today. And it might be out of Genesis. It might be out of Proverbs. It might be out of John. This week it's been John. It might be out of the Psalms. And take that one verse or those three verses or however many it is and open up your journal and make your mind slow down for five minutes and just write about the glory of God that you find or the truth that God is trying to teach you and then pray. And let me just tell you one more thing that I'm discovering. Your prayer life, the, the depth and the wonder of your prayer life will be intimately connected to whether or not you are meditating on scripture not just reading it if you come and you say i'm praying for aunt susie's liver i'm praying for the building fund you know i'm praying for the election and yet my my prayer life is kind of blah i'm going to ask what are you meditating on what scripture are you meditating on What what attributes of God are you finding in the Psalms, or in Isaiah, or in John, or or wherever, in Revelation? What is it that you're discovering about God that you're meditating on? And you'll probably tell me, I'm not not doing that. One of the lessons we can learn from Edwards is this. Your discipline of meditating on the scriptures, not just reading, not just, I'm, I'm not saying don't read large portions. You should do that. And you should study smaller portions, and you should meditate and memorize portions. And as you're you're memorizing and meditating, let that become the fuel of your prayers. In fact, let's do that tonight. We're going to come, we're going to have praise and worship time tonight, prayer and worship. Come, be a part of that. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to see the glory of God in his word and we're going to glory in it. We're going to rejoice in it and we're going to pray for needs that we know of. Edwards was a tremendous example of this. His words here are reminiscent of Jesus when he quoted the prophet and by saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every, what? every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Elsewhere, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his inmost being shall flow rivers of living water. What a timely message this is for today's church, which seems so committed to seeking to satisfy its soul in everything but God. Edwards often experienced the blessing of obeying the command Delight yourself in the Lord. And we should do, we would do well to imitate his faith. Let me do number three real quickly and then a fourth. Edwards lived resolved to please the Lord in everything. You catch that word resolve? Probably know where I'm going with this. The Word of God calls us not only to understand and believe the truth of Scripture, but to live a life that is wholly different from. What it was before we came became a child of God. Hence the apostle told to Colossians. If you can turn back to Colossians here for just a minute. Colossians chapter 1. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. This is one of the most Christocentric passages in all of the Bible, in all of the New Testament. Focused on Christ. Big section here focused on Christ. Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, that is, the day we heard of your salvation, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. And so here's what Edwards is thinking I want to live to glorify God, but I don't glorify God by default. I'm not hardwired to glorify God because I have a sinful heart. I'm kind of hardwired to dishonor God and live for self. And so, I've got to do things. I've got to do things. Now, there's a whole movement today that says, no, 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 you don't have to do anything. Just rest and feed on Jesus. And I would say to you, God bless you, rest and feed on Jesus, yes. But also, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's also work, knowing that God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Edwards took this seriously, hence his resolutions. But here, Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to, the, to God the Father through him, and Colossians 3.23, Whatever you do, work at it heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Do everything for the Lord. Do everything to please him. And so, beloved, I would say to you that the Christian life is lived in the details, not in the generalities. We must learn that every detail of our lives either counts either for, either for the glory of God or against the glory of God. And we must act on our own behalf to purchase and pursue a life that is Godward. Here's what Edwards did. When he was 19, and even in earlier years, he started this list of resolutions. When it was all said and done, there were 70 of them. Most of them he wrote when he was 19. And I'm just going to give you a few because I want to get to this last point. Resolution number five. By the way, this is January, beginning of a new year. Resolutions are good. He say, "Well, I never fully keep them. <coughs> Better to never fully keep them than to never even try. You try to fully keep them, and you'll make progress. If you just drift, you're not going anywhere, and you won't grow like you should." Resolution number five. See if you can see if you can pinpoint what he was struggling with at this moment. Resolved never to lose one moment of time but to improve it in the most possible way i possibly can time management he saw in his life i tend to be a slacker i got to get control of my time i got i got to you know put some kind of app on my iphone to help me <laughs> but he saw time management as an issue of either glorifying god or dishonoring him Resolved, number six, to live with all my might while I do live. You know what that means? It's not floating down the passive, placid, lazy river of life, resting and feeding on Jesus. (laughs) Figure out how to rest and feed on Jesus while you're living life with all your might. Resolved, number sixteen. Never to speak evil of anyone so that it shall tend to his dishonor more or less upon no account except for some real good. Don't talk about other people unless it's to love them. Resolved, number 20, to maintain the strictest temperance in eating and drinking. Oh, that one's too convicting. Let's go on to 22. (laughs) Resolved, number 22 to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can with all might, power, vigor, vehemence, yea, violence, I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way. In other words, it's going to be a fight. I know it's going to be a fight. Every morning, it's going to be a fight. And I'm going to wage war because I want to know And here's one that that a number of you need to hear in particular. Number 25, resolved to examine carefully and constantly what one thing in me is which causes me to doubt the love of God and to direct all my forces against it. Some of you need to hear that because you frequently doubt that God loves you. And it's a lie. And you need to work harder at battling that. You need to work harder at battling that. Number 28, resolved. To study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. And number 56, resolved. Resolved never to give over, nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. I love that. It gives me hope, because I find myself being unsuccessful often. Too many of us who claim to have a relationship with the glorious Lord and Savior live, frankly, just adrift in the tide of our culture and our impulses rather than pursuing the knowledge of God with all our might, which means you need to schedule it. You need to plan it. You need to work at it. You need to say no to other things. So not only can we learn from Edwards in his acknowledging the supremacy of God in all things and delighting in God as his highest good and resolving to please the Lord in everything, but lastly, and I love this one, I include this just because it's important and we overlook it so much. Number four, Edwards saw in creation an invitation... To worship. He saw in creation an invitation to worship. It's hard to worship while living at the speed of light, isn't it? Events, people, things go so quickly by us that we rarely have time to up and contemplate him in the light of eternity. And God's goal of glorifying himself in our wonder and delight of him is greatly inhibited by the overwhelming torrent of choices and options and information and entertainments that are always instantly available to us at the touch of a smartphone or an iPad or your cable box. In fact, I don't hesitate to say, beloved, that it is impossible to pursue the Godward life without restraining the ubiquitous diversions that turn our eyes, our minds, and our hearts away from God in favor of relatively worthless, though lawful, things. You know what I mean by that? I think if you're pursuing holiness, the things that trip you up are probably not big, big immorality kinds of sins. You're probably not stealing from your boss. You're probably not sleeping around. You're probably not, you know, addicted to pornography or cocaine or any of those things. Probably what gets you off track is all of the lawful pleasures of life that are now available to you in a way that Edwards could never have even dreamed. And they're with you. They're in your pocket right now. They're in your purse, and they are unlimited. And whenever you get a little bored or you feel a little blue, you can just click. And I think one of the things that can help us with this is um, to discipline ourselves, to notice and to take delight in the divine majesty and artistry that's apparent in creation. Here's what David wrote, Psalm 19. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the works of his hands. You know what he's saying? Even the empty space is... Dreaming something about God. How big is empty space? God is bigger. When was the last time you heard the heavens telling you that God is glorious and declaring to you the work of his hands? And we just sit by it. We see the sunsets. We see the clouds. We see the rain. We see the cold, the snow. And it never occurs to us to to use it as a launch pad for the glory of God, to worship God, to glory in Christ Jesus who made it all. It's all for him and it's made by him. No wonder we're joyless. No wonder our quiet times are flat. No wonder your evaluation of your your relationship with with Christ recently may be, oh, it's, it's been really dry. And maybe you need to pour a little water on it exercise the means of grace that's why i love reading biographies and every one of these guys i see what they do and i think i would have never thought of that that is so helpful and how to apply these doctrines these truths that i know that should be affecting my heart edward's love creation in fact that's a commonality between a lot of these dead theologians dead um uh, faithful brothers They all had gardens, and they raised flowers, and they knew all the tree species, and and they loved it. They loved creation. They knew the constellations. They saw God everywhere they looked. You wonder how they were able to write the things they wrote, and pray like they prayed, and lead like they led. And picking up on the significance of this truth, Paul wrote in Romans 1, that which is known about God is evident within them. That's humanity. For God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, it's interesting, he says invisible attributes, but now he says they are clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, that's creation, so that they are without excuse. We cannot see God by viewing what he is made We cannot see God directly, but we can see him through what he has made as we see it in the world around us today. And as we see it, we see something of his glory. In every snowstorm, every thunderstorm, every tree that turns color, when the grass turns green again, we should see the glory of God. And we should tell it to our children and our neighbors and people we see at work. After his salvation, Edwards became increasingly interested in the natural sciences. He loved what God made, and in studying it, he was convinced he was ultimately studying God himself. In the record of his salvation testimony, he says this. Okay, this is the part of his testimony after he's come to know Christ God has affected his heart, has changed him, has regenerated him in beautiful ways. But here is the effect that he's speaking of. He says, the appearance of everything was altered. There seemed to be, as it were, a calm, sweet cast or appearance of divine glory in almost everything. Everything. God's excellencies, his wisdom, his purity, his love seemed to appear in everything, in the sun, the moon, the stars, in the clouds, in the sky, in the grass, the flowers, the trees, in the water, and in all nature. I often felt a mourning and lamenting in my heart that I had not turned to God sooner, That I might have had more time to grow in grace. My mind was greatly fixed on divine things, indeed, almost perpetually in the contemplation of them. In another place he wrote, and I love this, he said, I often used to sit and view the moon for a long time. And in the day, spent much time in viewing the clouds and sky. And now I know some of you are thinking, where do you get the time for that? (laughs) To behold the sweet glory of God in these things. In the meantime, singing forth with a low voice, my contemplations of the creator and redeemer. In another part of the biography I read, it talks about his transformed view of thunderstorms, how they used to terrify him, like Martin Luther. They used to terrify him. And now he said, when the spring came, I couldn't wait for the thunderstorms because... I could hear the thundering voice of God and know that that was just the fringes of his magnificent glory. He saw the glory of God everywhere. And we can too. That's why we study men like this. Let me suggest, beloved, beloved, and we cannot delight in the glory of God while driving 65 miles an hour down the highway, listening to a radio, talking to a friend, sipping on our latte, and responding to a recent text you received on your iPhone at the same time. How many sunsets? How many moonscapes? How many cloud formations, constellations, waterfalls, glorious, gorgeous Texas prairie scenes have we missed because we're so frenetically busy with other things, things that in the scheme of things, really don't matter. You say, well, I'm listening to Christian radio. Okay. How about turn it off? And think about God. Look for him in the trees, in the in the sparse wildlife. I mean, even squirrels. I'm not sure about cats. But, <laughs> but horses? <laughs> I've tried. I've tried with cats, and I'm I know it's there. (laughs) And if we were to see it today, let me ask this. If you were to see the glory of God today, and you're thinking, I should respond to this. Would you even know how? Do you have words? Do you have words that would help you articulate the glory of God that you see? (laughs) Well, There are passages in the Bible to help with that. A lot of them. Psalm 8, for example. When I consider the heavens, the moon, and the stars that you have created, what is man that you are mindful of him? You know what? That's what Edwards was doing. David was doing it too, but he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Edwards was doing it, and we can learn from it. When I consider, what does that tell us? He's taking time to consider the heavens, the moon, and the stars that God has created. And he, he sees something. He sees God is big and I am small. In fact, I'm so small. When I think about how great the moon and the stars are, I think, God, why do you even think of me? And yet you have wow. passages like we read a little while ago out of Psalm 36 that talk about how much God loves and has provided for you. Who, in the scheme of things, are so insignificant, but not in God's eyes. And you could turn to Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, expanse, you know. And there are are numerous. I I think when I was on vacation, I ran into several passages that talked about snow and ice, and I thought, next ice storm, I'm going to them. Next snowstorm, next thunderstorm. I want to go to that psalm that talks about the word of the Lord breaking cedars. There's all kinds of things in Scripture to help you look at creation and glorify the God who created it. But beyond Scripture, there's other things. There's the great hymns of the faith. And there's one that many of you young people don't know, but all of us old-timers, I can't believe I just called myself an old-timer. I'm not 50 yet, but that's a different story but a song that so many of us know and grew up with, cut our teeth on even before we were believers. And one of them reads like this. And when you hear this, if you're not in tune with what Edwards is going for, the glory of God, and the delight that he experiences every time he sees the glory of God in creation, you'll read this and go, what kind of wacky, you know, toast poetry is this? But if you understand, you'll get it. When through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees, when I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze. You see what he's saying? He's asking, what happens to my soul when I see these things? Now, here's his answer. And I want you to sing it with me. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. I submit to you, that's what Edwards would do. That's what Brainerd did. That's what George Mueller did. That's what John Patton did. That's what William Carey did. That's what Adoniram Judson did. Edwards, like David and Paul before him, knew the great delight of glorifying God and the things that he saw. And we would do well to imitate his faith. Hebrews thirteen seven is our mandate. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. And so I submit to you that Jonathan Edwards, though he was by no means a perfect man, And even he himself was unable to keep his seventy resolutions perfectly. But he was faithful. And he pursued with a holy passion what he called a Godward life. The Godward life. And I would say we would do well to learn from his example. Let's pray. And Father, we praise you that you have raised up men like this throughout the years who are worthy of emulation. They are not God, they are not the Holy Spirit, they are not Jesus. But you have moved with power, powerful grace in their lives to make them men and women of God whose lives in many respects are worthy of our imitation. So I pray, Father, that you would help us Help us to pursue sanctification. Give us discernment as we look at how others do it. But, oh, Father, may we do it with all our might while we do live. These things, Father, we ask and plead for in the name of our Savior, Jesus.